Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, recorded at the PW offices in New York City. Well, in this case, we're spread out. We're all from remote locations, but I'm still Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. Check us out on Twitter at at PWComicsWorld. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to more to come on iTunes and on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash PWComicsWorld. All right, this week on More to Come, Grant Morrison and Wonder Woman. And we're going to run down all of the stuff uh, surrounding Shelley Vaughn leaving uh, Vertigo, uh, Eddie Berganza and uh, his tribulations, and uh, Frank Cho is in the news again. And we'll end it with The Dark Knight at City Field. Uh, <laughs> how's that? Right, and we also have a few interviews from this year's Sakura and Matsuri oh, yes, at yes. the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. So, uh, but let's jump to Grant Morrison, which we have an author profile uh, on, at publishersweekly.com slash comics uh, by, uh, by uh, Heidi McDonald. So tell us, um, he's taken <laughs> on uh, a hero for the ages, Wonder Woman. Oh, yes, he has. And, um, you know, Grant, he said himself in the profile, like, uh, you know, Grant, what's left for you? And he's like, nothing. I can't do a Scottish accent. Nothing. I've done it all. <laughs> and uh, he really has. And Wonder Woman really was the last character. Of course, he did All-Star Superman, which is really one of the greatest depictions of Superman ever in the in the comics uh, with Frank Whiteley, his uh, frequent collaborator. He did uh, Batman. Uh, I get many runs on Batman, uh, including the most recent one with uh, Damien. And uh, he he also did the JLA back in the day. But he did JLA in the 90s with Howard Porter on a defining run. You, you know, go. he did the X-Men. He, uh, he, you know, he wrote The Invisibles. He did Doom. He's done it all, you know, except Wonder Woman. And, um, you know, Grant, uh, so many people have asked him over the years, like, you know, what do you think of Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman. And, uh, you know, again, he said that he wasn't, like most boys, he wasn't really very interested in her as a kid because the comics that were around when he was a kid were very dull. And, um, you know, I uh, I said... And Wonder Woman actually had become somewhat dull in comparison, right, with her beginnings. Right. Well, very much so. Right. The comics themselves were, especially in Silver Age, when, yeah... Not the best. Right. Well, I'm sure we've talked on this podcast before because I think we might have even been doing this during some of the uh, aborted uh, Wonder Woman attempts and filmed entertainment. Uh, You know, there was the TV show and then there was going to be a movie, but then there wasn't going to be a movie. And, you know, there's been so many. And now there's going to be a movie. Yeah. And uh, she was, uh, you know, it was well-timed, like, you know, just from the time that they announced uh, Batman versus Superman to now suddenly female superheroes are all the rage and everyone agreed that Wonder Woman was the best thing in Batman v Superman but but in the comics it's still uh, you, you know the Brian Azzarello Cliff Chang recent run was very well received then yeah, that, David, was, that, yeah. that was well reviewed yeah yeah but then the David Finch Meredith Finch review run not as well reviewed not so, you, so, well reviewed. so you know in a, in a career that's really like I you know but I've known Grant a long time, but but while I was researching for the interview, just looking at everything he's done, like it's kind of mind-boggling how many great comics oh. he's written. Oh uh, yeah. But could 
Grant Morrison conquers the unconquerable Wonder Woman. And, uh, you know... Well, I certainly hope he doesn't conquer her. <laughs> <laughs> well, conquer the problem of making her interesting. Have you, have you read the graphic novel yet, Kate? I have not read this okay. one. I have read more than my share of Wonder Woman over the years. And, you know, some of it's pretty good um, if you read the right ones. Right. I feel like Wonder Woman is just one of those characters that you just need to hit the sweet spot in order to write her right. Yeah. And it's not it's not one of those ones where there's a shorthand you can do. You really need to you get it right. in order to right. make it happen. Yeah. Well, you know, I've read it. I, I mean, I don't I don't want to... I don't want to deliver spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say this: that I actually, I actually thought uh, his treatment, Morrison's treatment of, of Wonder Woman, was fairly tame. Maybe with the exception of laying out um, a, maybe a clearer view of Paradise Island. Yes, and maybe what people do for three thousand years there. <laughs> yes, yes. You now how they pass the time. <laughs> Yes, um, how they how they get their kits? Yeah, well, you know, he did say, and and uh, you, you know, I I I I have interviewed. I, I you know, there's another interview with Grant Morrison that I did for this podcast last year at San Diego, where he talked about oh, um, yeah. some mm-hmm. of his uh, books that were coming out, and uh, you know, the guy is the most fascinating conversationalist. He just you ask about anything, he's got a good you know theory about it. But his thing about Wonder Woman was that everybody gets that Batman is is Batman a Superman a Superman you know represents truth and justice and Batman represents dark vengeance he says but uh, Wonder Woman people didn't get that she's really based in uh, freaky sexuality <laughs> well she <laughs> and is queer and, and queer culture and, yes, well, I, I feel like that's one interpretation right. which is a perfectly fine infer- interpretation but if you're going with as square of an interpretation as the ones you gave of of Batman and Superman, then I would say the equivalent would be that um, Wonder Woman really represents the question of what if women really are better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, uh, maybe Kate. we're better good off. Good one, Kate. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would agree with Kate. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a that, that's a that's a powerful theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, she clearly represents female agency if i'm not getting right, you know sure. too jargony right. with that and you know to a certain extent sometimes a certain amount of oh how do we put this uh female chauvinism kind of to a certain degree right. but that's and and actually, maybe if we weren't living in the world we were living in that would be offensive but given that we are living in man's world it's kind of an interesting counterpoint right I mean actually I, I would suggest uh, once again trying not to give uh, spew out spoilers that Morrison does a bit of exactly what Kate is talking about I, I think he does. and actually I think makes he it seem like the most natural thing in the world he does and it's very you know, it's not a uh you know, a judgmental take on it. I, you know, the book has been controversial. I mean, it's kind of a love it or hate it book in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there have been some really scathing reviews that talked about how there's rape elements in there. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, Wonder Woman is on chains on the cover. But I, I would contend that that's very, very, um, very, very tied to Ma, Ma, Charles Moulton Marston, the creator of Wonder Woman, his original yeah. vision, because there was a lot about 
uh, loving, uh, loving bondage in there, and um, you know, submission, loving submission, and not not necessarily, you know, there's some kinky stuff going on, but not even necessarily in a in a sexual, overtly sexual way. So, so I think he took some very interesting elements from it, and you know, the art is by Yannick Paquette, who is a really, really good artist, and. Um, he does draw very beautiful people, men and women, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is definitely, it's not good girl art, which we'll be talking about later on in this podcast, but, uh, you know, it's definitely a very attractive Wonder Woman. But I think one thing everybody got very, was very positive about is that, um, you know, Etta Candy comes back, and she is a, a queer and, uh, you know, person of size, and, and she's a great character, yeah. as always, and, you know, Steve Trevor comes back as African-American, so... Mm-hmm. You know, the Earth One line is a reimagining of the most popular DC heroes for beginners, and I think in yeah. that it it fulfilled it. And uh, I know from well, and frankly, it sounds like it's sticking closer to the Wonder Woman concept than yes. some other. Earth All ones. the tropes are there. Yes. Now he tweaks them. All yeah. the tropes of, of Wonder Woman are there. But he, he tweaks them in really in interesting ways, I think. Yes, I, I agree. And apparently audiences are reacting. Uh, I was told, uh, well, it's a secret. I really shouldn't say it. But uh, I, I've heard that uh, it's put, like, perhaps a book starring Wonder Woman has already sold some 80,000 copies. So uh, yeah. doing very well. So uh, There you go. Yeah. So And there's more to come. Uh, a part of the yeah. interview is that Grant uh, told me that him, he and Yannick, uh, Yannick are doing two more Earth One graphic yeah. novels starring uh, Wonder Woman. And he's very enthusiastic about them. So I really look forward to seeing uh, what he does. Sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So moving right along. Um, let's start off with Shelley Bond. Um, the, you know, the... the the woman who took over Vertigo from uh, Karen Berger uh, and kind of uh, aimed it on its new charting, right? Uh, on on a new course, right? Uh, and she, she and and who has been there really as long as Karen? Yes. Uh, well, was she was there, there for twenty three years. Yes. Yeah, twenty three years. I mean, so maybe not you know, as long, right but after almost. Karen, yeah, almost yeah. as long. And you know, uh, after Karen, there's no one who shaped Vertigo more than Shelley Bob. Absolutely. Now, um, she, uh, according to DC. Um, Publicity. Well, I'm just I'm going to use this phrase. Uh, her her position was eliminated and she is leaving. She was not fired. Yes. That said, clearly uh, they had reached a point where there are problems at Vertigo. Um, we've discussed them somewhat on this show. And for better or for worse, it seems like Shelly uh, was the fall guy. Yeah, I, it's not I would I wouldn't use the term fall guy, really. Well, I mean, uh, you know, some, well, somebody had to go. Right. And, well, let me let me. You know, yeah. You, you can't talk, fire all the players right. as bef- they. You know, before we talk about goes. that, let me let me point out. There's. Some, I don't think we talked about this, but uh, you know, the j- whole young animal line with Gerard mm-hmm. yes. Way. Did we sure, talk? Sure, did did we yeah, talk sure. about that last time? Well, we or, mentioned or, it. Yeah. I think, we mentioned um, it existed. Yeah, but yeah. we didn't know what it meant. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, uh, like basically at Emerald City, they announced that Gerard Way, who uh, was an intern at DC Comics, would be you know heading. I yeah. imprint of four titles that are kind of more like what Vertigo started out doing, which was taking classic DC characters and giving them a dark, edgy, contemporary, relevant spin. Uh, the Doom Patrol is one of them, and uh, yeah. there was mm-hmm. a couple of other new ones. So, you know, when everybody saw that, everybody got really excited. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know, I actually worked at Vertigo. I worked at Vertigo with Shelley Bond, with Karen Berger, a long mm-hmm. time ago, you know, 14 years ago. So hardly contemporary 
uh, news on there. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, anyway, when they announced Young Animal, uh, <laughs> there was so much excitement over it, and everybody's like, oh, what a wonderful new direction. And, you know, listen, I, I did a big tribute to Shelley on the beat because I felt like uh, some subsequent events that we're about to talk about really obscured the fact that she's really one of the most distinctive editorial voices that has been in comics for the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, she really had a vision. And I, I will say, I think, uh, you know, the vision, I, unfortunately, I do think that Shelley's vision was proven over and over again in the marketplace that it wasn't really succeeding, you know? I mean, she did Fables, and that was great, and, she, you know, yeah. Sandman, she shepherded along, and some other books, but there's been... I mean, Calvin, I know you've talked to, to uh, DC several times about... Well, I I, talked to them I've talked to year. some people over there, for sure. But well, you talked I mean, to look, her last year about the relaunch, didn't you? Yes, or, yeah. absolutely. Well, we did, you know, we did a, we did a big story on the relaunch, um, and we talked with Shelley about it, and, and kind of outlined the books that were coming out. Uh, we've even done uh, at New York Comic Con last year. We did a big story about the, um, I guess, the spring books that are coming right. out now. You know, um, yeah. uh, uh, we did a big piece on that and, and looked at some of those books. Uh, I mean, I mean, my description, you know, really of Shelley as a fall guy was really to take some of the onus off of her. Right. At the end of the day, she's running the she's running the line, and what I'm constantly hearing. Um, and what we've talked about as well is that the kinds of books that, you know, I think you used to associate with um, Vertigo, really you're associating with Image now. Yes. I mean, that's 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 what I see. And, and I think there's just worry there that, you know, that Image is eating their lunch. Yeah, and you know, even though you've got a completely different business model to to, to deal with, though. Excuse yeah. me, go on, Kai. And I, I was just going to say, I mean, I haven't even said this aloud, but as we're talking, it's really the perfect metaphor has come. You know, even if you're the greatest football coach on earth, you you win the Super Bowl. After a while, the team stops winning, and it might not be your fault. Maybe you just had some crappy draft picks or something. But you know what? A change is needed at the top, and the coach is gone, and that's really what happened with Shalom. Well, you know. Well, but also. To extend the metaphor, you may be the greatest football coach in the world, but if your team stops paying the football players as well as the other teams, yes, yes, then this <laughs> well, will this will I, hasten the demise of your team and your career. Yes, I love will. being on a on a show of women who use sports metaphors. Yes, but go on. Yes. That, <laughs> well, was that was all. I, that's like, it. You know, I'm, you I'm looking, paying as well as everybody I, else. I'm looking. You're at, well of talent. I, I think we've hit every sports cliche there is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the last. And they're all appropriate. Uh, the last sales charts here, and really, I mean. Like some of these Vertigo titles were selling less than Scooby Doo, you know. They were selling less than four thousand, five thousand copies a month, and and you know, I mean, I'm looking art ops. I mean, this book is by drawn by Mike Allred. I mean, it doesn't get much. Uh... Calvin, what are you doing in your yeah, Calvin, end? Making a lot it. of noise. Is something wrong? You're making a lot of noise. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think a bigger question, and uh, and, and you know, listen, Shelley is is uh, a lot of people 
found Shelly very difficult to work with. I'll just say that. And, you know, but she was equally, she supported the people that she loved a lot. And so many creators really looked to her. She was a mentor to them and a friend to them. So, mm -hmm. you know, like, like most people with a vision, it's a mixed bag. I think the real question is, where does Vertigo fit in in today's comics marketplace? You know, is this a tarnished brand for whatever reason? I mean, is image, image is eating its lunch. I mean, what can be done to, to, to stop that? Money. Well, I mean, Money <laughs> to be done to stop that. Well, I mean, look, I've heard, um, uh, you know, back when Karen left uh, Vertical, I've heard, and I have no solid evidence uh, to verify this or not. I've heard, and my understanding was that the contracts had been changed, uh, that, you know, they, you know, the uh, movie studios at Warner wanted more control. Uh, I don't know whether any of this is true, but I do know that you have so many um, artists who have worked for Vertigo who are publishing books through Image now. And I think we all know uh, what, you know, uh, or have a framework for the kind of deals they're getting, though I'm sure some get better deals than others. Um, but I think that they've got a real problem in that I think that, you know, authors want a level of control that perhaps, you know, Vertigo can't give them. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know they do they want they have more control they want more control and you know this is a very serious thing and you know there was another story that i wrote where uh last year they launched this initiative called Def defy and uh launched a whole bunch of new titles and uh, uh dc spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars on marketing which you know incurred included some returnability but it was a big advertising campaign i i think there were even you know radio spots tv spots i mean they they certainly gave you know listen they've given vertigo a chance and i'll tell you why it's because there is an iZombie tv show on that has been renewed for a second yeah. season and there's uh -huh. a lucifer tv show on that a lot of people right, like you and you know there's there's more i mean there was a constantine show or Const yeah constantine and uh you know it's a really great IP factory. So yeah, yeah. But I think, and plus, I think. But when we talk about money, it's not so much the money of promotion as that. I believe Heidi, correct me if I'm wrong, that the contracts at Vertigo used to be better. Yes, and, they did, and they just aren't anymore. Whereas other parts of the comic industry have moved more toward a you know a higher level of creator control. Yeah. Well, if you you know back in the day, back when I was was there back in my day uh you know getting a book at vertigo was the ultimate you know yeah like once you got a title there you had reached the pinnacle and it wasn't even that the sales were that great out of the box but you know you got a page rate you got residuals from the uh graphic novels and the graphic novels that you know quite a few of them sold very well. I mean, you know, I forgot. There's a Preacher TV show debuting in a couple of oh, weeks. Yeah. I mean, we'll be talking about that. That was a title that launched at, yeah. at Vertigo. And, uh, you know, those books are selling really well uh, right now. And, and we'll sell even more once the TV show comes on. So, so you know, this was the, 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 the greatest. This is where you went with your great idea. And uh, then a couple things happened. I mean, the contracts changed. And uh, also... I mean, image just became this place where, yes. like, if you, mean, okay, you know, perfect. Let, just, just finish this thought. The, the perfect example is like Scott Snyder. You know, when Scott Snyder launched American Vampire at Vertigo, it was Scott who? Oh, he has a friend named Stephen King. Oh, how nice for him. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, this book is really good. And why don't we see if he can write Batman? And he becomes a superstar. And then what does yeah. he do? He goes over to Image and does a book called Witch. And he has been public about how he's made more money off of that one book he did at Image than he did off of you know, writing uh, Batman uh, on a per-issue basis. So, you know, it's not the pinnacle anymore. 
And if I, if I could just add something, you know, in fairness uh, to Vertigo and to, and to Shelley, I mean, you know, when you I, I'm looking at the last slate of comics they announced during New York Comic Con last year, I mean, I was interested in a few of them, mm-hmm. particularly Twilight Children, which is, you know, done by Gilbert Hernandez and, uh, and Darwin Cook. Um, I mean, some of these books unfollow. Uh, they look really interesting. That doesn't mean that that, that they're selling. Right. So um, they've got a lot of work to do there. I, you know, I certainly don't know what the answer is going to be. No, and I think, I think right now with uh, with Rebirth coming and Young Animal coming, and you know, now Jamie Rich has taken over, who was like the senior editor at Vertigo, but he's taken, oh, yes. he's kind of pretty much taken over the line, uh, and so. You know, there's really more to come on this, and we'll have to see how the market reacts to to Young Animal and to uh, a new line of books. Yep, yep. All right. Anyway, well, interestingly, when Shelley, the news of Shelley Bond's position being eliminated at Vertigo broke, uh, which is certainly its own thing and deserving of its own uh, segment of this podcast and many others, uh, then... On social media, some people were showed their disgust by tweeting, "How could Shelley Bond leave and Eddie Braganza stay at DC Comics?" and uh, and then they all hell broke loose. <laughs> yeah, well. So and it was. Yeah. Really, so let's unpack this a bit for our listeners. Well, it, there have been many. You know, we talked about this last year uh, when the story about Scott Alley, the editor in chief of Dark Horse, broke uh, with his story of uh, harassing um, a man at San Diego, and there was a lot more talk about the problem of harassment in comics. And uh, many people alluded to a serial harasser at DC Comics who was not named and several uh, well-known incidents that are known in the industry, uh, one of which was at WonderCon. And uh, so, uh, you know, this... Uh, basically, Janelle Asselin, who has been the whistleblower on so much stuff, and she's really been a tireless, tireless crusader for this. And, you know, if you read her blog, you know, it's not always easy for her. And I, I really give her props, you know, for speaking well, out. Sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's a very brave thing of her to do. But she just said, uh, you know, when I was at D.C., I was one of several people who wrote, uh, you know, complained about him to Human Resources, and uh, he was he was um, promoted anyway, and that's why I left D.C., and uh, but then the story from WonderCon came out, and you know, listen, I'll, I'll say this on this this podcast: it's like, I mean, I was there when this incident happened. I did not see it happen, but I was standing maybe twenty feet away. And believe me, as soon as it happened, uh, everyone was telling me about it. So you know, it's not like people say alleged incident. Well, you know, this is not alleged. This is something that actually happened to people at WonderCon, and. Uh, Eddie was, uh, there was a, the girlfriend of a freelancer who actually is, um, I, I guess she is involved in comics as well. That's all I'll say about that. But, yeah. uh, where he, uh, forced himself a, a kiss upon her, uh, on one of contact while her boyfriend was standing right there and then made some excuse for it. And, you know, this is a freelancer who works for DC Comics. So that's, you know, I think that's inappropriate behavior for a senior level uh, editor at a company or any company. Um, so basically, I must defer to Rich Johnston. I uh, don't often do that, but I will say that his coverage of the story was really, really uh, very well researched. Uh, very spot on, and he says that after this incident, there was a lot of outcry against Braganza, because this was certainly not his first uh, abuse, but perhaps 
the most flagrant in public. Mm. And uh, he was uh, demoted um, to a, a lesser title. He had been executive editor. I think he was demoted to group editor. And he was uh, underwent like mo- behavioral yeah. modification therapy, yeah. as you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause a lot of things came out. But the, this happened four years ago. And since then, a couple things. Uh, he has not, there have been no more reported incidents. There have been no more write-ups. There have been no more, you know. Uh, of course, this came after he was banned from going to conventions. And also... More troublingly to me, banned from working with women in the office. Like, basically, no women are allowed to be hired at the Superman office, in the office. And uh, for a while, no female freelancers were allowed to work on Eddie's books. Uh, although now... So basically, no woman we... could do Superman because he couldn't handle being in the vicinity of a woman. Now, now this is what is rumored, right? Now, isn't the William um, you know, Cole's reporting that DC denies this? That this was the case uh, about the uh, about the the all woman office about the all woman office. He, they, they said the that, no women well, office that, that it was structured. Office. Excuse me, that they it was said, structured that way. They that said, it, oh, said the JLA office is also all male, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I'll just say this: I've talked to many people. I didn't believe it because that just sounds crazy to me. I mean, how could you make some kind of thing like that, right? And well, it seems over the top. Yes, it does seem over the top. And then a bunch of people. More separately, told me that they had heard. It's not like it's written down, but it's like yeah. they had heard there was an informal policy that I see. there were, would not be any women hired. Now, women are working for Superman now. Amanda Connor, uh, Emanuela mm-hmm. Lupacino, mm-hmm. are, uh, whose name I probably just messed up. I think Nicola Scott. Uh, however, it is significantly, and actually, Eddie Braganza edited the Wonder Woman Earth One graphic novel we were just talking about. But significantly, yeah. Wonder Woman uh, will not be edited out of that office when it comes back and Rebirth, uh, written by Greg Rucka. It'll be edited mm-hmm. by, I believe, Mark Doyle's office. So, you know, I, 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 I don't think this is all very pretty well documented. I mean, Rich Johnson is the one who reported about the demotion yeah. and the behavioral therapy and all that sort of stuff but i i have not and, and it's a very clear uh you know unprovocative uh accounting uh yes. of the, the of what he calls a very rigid steps in um at warner brothers uh human relations yes yes and i they do i mean if this is a huge corporation i'm sure eddie begins is not the worst person who ever worked there and i'm sure they had to deal with worse you know i think the whole thing like there's been still a constant outcry um I understand uh, that it is pretty much impossible for Warner Brothers to make a statement, a public statement about this, or for Beganza himself to make a public statement about this, just because of how big corporations work. I think there's a loud and vocal segment of the uh, internet, comics internet, that wants to have some kind of closure on this and to know why... you know, uh, what seems like a serial harasser still employed and, mm. you know, being worked around in that capacity. Mm. So, uh, but I doubt that statement will be forthcoming. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, obviously, we wish Shelley well, and we'll be very interested in seeing where she lands. Uh, and certainly uh, the, outri- the outcry about this is because of an industry that has such a, a terrible legacy of treating women. Yes. So this doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. No, it doesn't. Uh, and you know, it, there's there's reasons for it. Unfortunately, um, you know, um, it does seem as though there were guidelines and policy 
you know, uh, recommendations that were followed pretty clearly. Yeah, there does. Um, you know, I think the bit larger question is, is, yeah, you know, I, I, I know Eddie. Okay. I worked with Eddie also. Mm. I, I, he's not a monster, you know? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious by his own private admissions, apparently that he had some problems, uh, you know, and that he did mm. need to address those issues. And, you know, listen, America loves a comeback. Okay. I always say that. And it's like America loves it when somebody says I did wrong and now I'm doing right because yeah. I believe it's the right thing to do. And I am sorry, you know, and, uh, I, and by all accounts, there have been no repeats of the incident there, this has been, of the behavior. No, no, this is yeah. this has been said. So, but I, you know, I think as, as it's it does just point out that uh, you know we have a long way to go. And I think between this, the Scott Alley incident, which are you know two public, very public incidents, yeah. you know, countless, extremely public, <laughs> extremely public, uh, and of course many private incidents as well. But I just hope. As I've said right along, please, comics, please, 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 just grow up. Guess what? Women are here, and they read comics. I wrote a whole long piece about, you know, there was... And what's more, even if women didn't read comics, even if women just worked in comics, you should still be nice to them. Uh, I mean, yes, I, yes, I do, th- I, 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 you know, listen, harassment happens in every industry, everywhere okay it's not comics only problem but what comics does have as its own weird fucked up oh sorry excuse me weird messed up problem (laughs) is that from the 70s on until still now and it's just now we've talked about this before there was a very strong belief that women did not read comics period period i was told that i was i was given proof of that uh over and over and over again and i could tell you every like arguments I've had with the former and current publishers of some of the biggest companies in comics arguing about whether it was ca- women are capable of reading comics. Okay. Uh, so well <laughs> yeah. So, so what, yeah, let's capable, just leave that capable. Stupid where it belongs. Yeah. 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 Now, care. speaking about speaking of growing up. Mm, oh boy. <laughs> Um, uh, apparently Frank Cho is in the news again. And for those of you who don't know Frank Cho, he is a highly esteemed, uh, comics illustrator, does a lot of covers, um, uh, known for his Liberty Metals comic strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a terrific illustrator, but, uh, he does like to do the pinup thing. Yeah. Well, he draws sexy ladies. And, yeah, he um, does quite and, well. And he also, you know, this is a guy who, when he was on the, uh, when on on the Ignatz Awards committee voted to nominate himself, so he doesn't have the best judgment, okay? And he has a pretty big <laughs> ego, which as usually is usually fielded by a lack of self esteem. Let's just point that out. Uh, so you know, uh, I, Kate and Calvin, do you remember a few years ago when we were talking about that damn Milo Manara Spider Woman cover? <laughs> yes, yes, a beautiful cover that was perhaps not well chosen for the new direction Marvel had decided to go. Right, and yeah. I, you know, basically Milo Manara, one of the most uh, famous erotic, no other word for erotic comics artist of sure. all times, draws exactly sexy what ladies, <laughs> uh, was hired to do a variant cover for Spider-Woman, a title which was supposedly aimed at girls, or, you know, women. And this issue just wouldn't go away. I mean, we talked about it for months, and, and every time that pose comes up again, it just touches a nerve. So, so basically, Cho did a variant cover for the book... Um, 
before. Now I'm forgetting. It's a video game book for Udon, which publishes a Street Fighter, I think. Uh, the character oh. Cammy, <laughs> and he did it in the Milo Minara pose. And, you know, this this prompted some very strong um, editorials. Because one thing that Cho does is, you know, Marvel DC, all publishers put out these blank cover variants. So you could buy it, you could take it to your favorite artist in Artist Alley and get them. What? Who's doing that? Oh, hello? Hi, Cal- what are those Calvin, noises? what are you doing? I was trying to find something on the internet, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta oh, look. Okay. Kate, leave but- that in. Don't edit it out. It was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> anyway, so he did these... He, when Frank Joe does these variants where he draws various characters in the Manara pose and in other... You know, he draws Power Girl. Every, Of course, people know yeah. that Frank Joe draws awesome, sexy ladies, so they're always going to him and ask you to draw Power Girl and Wonder Woman yeah. and Supergirl. Take and it all. from me. He does them great. He does. He does. And, and, you know, and then he draws, like, oh, outrage. This is terrible. You know, uh, and it just, uh, to me, it's sigh. like, you know, somebody's being juvenile. And then you are re- reacting as an adult to this juvenile behavior. You know, it's like you just need to, I don't know. You know, there was a piece. I'll just, I'm going to stop here because I, I just, I, I hear him talking about something that annoys me. But there was, you know, one very, it was a very impassioned think piece by Claire Napier on Women Write About Comics. And she said, you know, Marvel and DC allow Cho to do this. And it's like, they don't allow him to do anything. He draws, somebody gives him a blank piece of paper and he draws something on it for money. Okay. Yeah. That has nothing to do with Marvel and DC. And somebody brought this up in the comments and she said, well, they should write a letter and say he shouldn't do it. And, you well, know, that's not no, how this Ridiculous. Brent Cho is an extremely popular comics illustrator. And in my view, publishers go to him because they know he'll do really popular covers. Mm-hmm. And he's furthermore, a really good artist. Uh, furthermore, you know, he has, and as does everyone, the right to draw whatever the hell yes. he wants. Privately, and you have the right to not buy space. it. <laughs> and yes, you have a right to say that's stupid. Right. And I don't uh, need it in my money. collection. Moving on. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> it well, seems just, to me. Well, just to bring this full circle, uh, he was announced. He left Marvel recently, and he's going to do the variant covers for Wonder Woman. And <laughs> so this again, you know, and I, I got into a little Twitter scrap with someone who, and I'm just like, this is not going to do any good. Like, but how are Marvel and DC, you know, how are they not going to know about, uh, how are they to be told about this? And I'm like, I think they know. You know, yes, I don't think they... <laughs> I, I think they know, and I think they don't give a crap. So uh, yeah, you need yeah. to have a new call to action. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it just it just drives traffic to his site. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, but... frankly, I I personally do. I think that Frank Cho is a great choice for Wonder Woman cover. Probably not. Do I really have? Do I really care very much about whether Wonder Woman character Wonder Woman cover is amazing or not? Not really. As long as it doesn't equal the the infamous uh, Marvel tentacle cover, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. I mean, there- shout out shout out to Frank Cho. No tentacles. Okay. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, well, you know, this is the part of the program where somehow or other we managed to mash up comics, um, baseball, uh, and, you know, Batman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so uh, 
Heidi, take it away. Oh well, I, I feel like I've talked too much already on this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, this is very bad timing. But before all of this outrage began, um, you know, I have known Dan DiDio for longer than he worked at DC Comics, just because I've known everybody for a long time. Because I'm, so <laughs> I'm so old, I'm so old. But uh, anyway, and you know, I, I, we talked at WonderCon, we talked about Rebirth, and you know, we sort of, um, I don't know, buried the hatchet. I've certainly written some things about Dan uh, that, you know, I haven't been his biggest supporter, let's put it that way. But we kind of buried the hatchet, and one of the reasons we did is we're both big fans of the New York Mets. And... <laughs> I guess you could and say. And I like you anyway. But yeah, go on. we just hatched a scheme because Matt Harvey, the pitcher for the Mets, is his nickname is the Dark Knight, and you know there's Noah Syndergaard who's Thor, and Captain uh, David Wright is Captain, Captain America. America. It's so like a Marvel it, ghetto. Come it on. is like a. It is so. So the Dark Knight, and and you know there's a this beautiful uh, 30th anniversary of the Dark Knight box, very limited. It's not even for sale. It's just like something they did. Uh, and I know, so it's Dan, cool. it is. And so Dan had the idea of giving one to Matt Harvey, and you know, I thought, oh, that might be fun because maybe I'll get to go and meet Matt Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> and so there you go. Anyway, and but uh, but you know, I Ben McCool, uh, who my associate is uh, friends with one of the Mets <laughs> announcers, and you know, this all just started as, um, oh, who could you contact to set this up? Okay, but then it ended up with me, Ben, and Dan going to City Field on Sunday and meeting Matt Harvey and giving him the box. And, you know, a picture was taken. And, uh, you know, I, I asked him, I have to, uh, this is only for the podcast, only for the people who listen to the podcast will ever hey, hear this. Exclusive, folks. This is yeah, an exclusive. exclusive. I, the, supposedly, the men in our party were, were really nervous about meeting Matt. And I have to say, I had been. But then, you know, he's just a guy. He's just a tall, dreamy uh, guy with hard-throwing, a hard-throwing power pitcher power with the best stuff in the major leagues. Yes. Uh, so I was like, uh, I asked him. I said, oh, do you, you know, do you collect Dark Knight uh, memorabilia? And he said, no. <laughs> no, that's just a nickname that, that um, Sports Illustrated gave. So, you know, I, but I, I you know. I, I, um, he ain't turning none of it I'm down, not, though. But I'm not going to turn it down. But then he said, but, you know, I, so I don't really have that much. He says, but I have these special shoes. And, like, his shoes are made by Nike, and they have a little Batman logo on them, there which he showed go. us. There you and go. And so, yeah, so that that was it. So that, that that's the story of the, the picture floating around. And, you know, it was – and then we also got to hang out a little bit and, you know, in the media room there and, uh, and you know, hang out at the game. And um, it was – a really fun day. Uh, uh, I loved it. Well, and, yeah. Well, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All well, right. Well, speaking of really fun days this weekend, um, I had I went to an event that you had more comics theme and content than expected. The Sakura Matsuri at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, um, where basically this the Brooklyn Botanic Garden has like the largest collection of Japanese flowering cherry trees in the New York area. I mean, it's a beautiful cherry tree garden. And so to celebrate this every year, they have a two-day Japanese-themed festival. Well, the thing is that even though uh, they really only had four comic creators there, like every manga aficionado in New York came out frequently in costume, mixing with just random Japanophiles and garden lovers. Mm -hmm. 
And, I mean, the place was so packed that you could hardly see the trees, but they were still there. Uh, we have some great pictures on the Tumblr from it, and um, we have some interviews coming up at the end of the podcast. Cool. All awesome. right. So, news briefs. And now, the briefs. So, March, the famous and much-beloved uh, autobiographical civil rights saga by Congressman John Lewis with his co-author Andrew Iden and artist Nate Powell is now coming to animation near you. Um, they are working with Charleston Immersive and Interactive Media and they will um, work on trying to make it into an animated series. So that should be interesting. And sounds awesome. It sounds awesome, <laughs> and I imagine it will be coming to a social studies classroom near you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I assume this is going to be a TV, uh, animated TV series, but they, they, they don't really provide a whole lot of data, uh, about no. information about it at this time. But, you know, um, maybe they're an, ind- they're an independent production company, so maybe – they're going to create it and then, you know, try to sell it to a network. Yeah. We'll see. But it, yes, but it, it, it's uh, it's almost a no-brainer. This has been, you know, uh, there's three books in the series. The third one's coming out this year. Every one of them has been acclaimed. It's it's really an amazing uh, document in in comics, you know, of, yeah. um, of, of you know, the civil rights movement. Yeah. Here it's a great story. It's well-written, mm-hmm. and it really executes it well in comic form. Yeah. So... That should translate well to screen. Yep. Um, speaking of things translating to screen, Punisher is coming to Netflix. <laughs> so this... Hello, Frank Castle. Yes. <laughs> so this should probably not be a surprise to anyone who's seen the latest season of Daredevil. But yes, Punisher will get his own series on Netflix coming to a computer screen near you. All right. And... One last thing on a lighter note than Punisher, uh, Rick Riordan, um, creator of the Percy Jackson series, has offered $10,000 in matching funds for Rosarium Comics. Um, Rosarium Comics is a relatively new comics publisher that has an ambitious slate of books planned uh celebrating diversity and they have an Indiegogo campaign running in order to, you know, help actually pay for it. So, conveniently, uh, Rick Riordan has said that he will match pledges up to $10,000 for this $40,000 goal. Well, that's that's great. Uh, Rosarium is a really interesting uh, small publisher. Um, uh, our, our our own uh, Bridget Alveson did a piece about them, I think it's about a year ago or something. Yeah. I've talked with the publisher myself, Bill Campbell, terrific guy. He's a novelist um, and, and actually started as a self-publishing novelist uh, who um, uh, was kind of focused on African-American things. He's an African-American writer himself. Um, he he went through years of people telling him that nobody would, you know, don't nobody will buy, much like people uh you know said women didn't write comics supposedly you know black people don't right. buy books yeah, right. he self-published them themselves found an audience then launched a publishing company then he noticed that these small press fairs he was seeing all these comics people that also didn't have any publishers he started bringing them into into the fold so he's got a really interesting slate of black prose and black comics artists um uh, i've read some of the books in particular 
Uh, he's got a great, uh, there's a, a series called Kid Code, Channel Zero. It's actually done by a terrific duo. They call themselves Black Kirby. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's John Jennings and Stacey Robinson. And they were up at the Black Comic Book Festival at the Schoenberg also this year. Uh, and in fact, John Jennings is one of the organizers of the of the Black Comic Book Festival uh, at the Schoenberg. But it's a, it's a mind-blowing uh, um, time travel, um, uh, sci-fi, metaphysical adventure story. Um, I think they call it a hip-hop Doctor Who. Uh, it's it's you know it's eyeball vibrating uh, the art and and you'll see why they call it Black Kirby when you read it. Right <laughs> and and uh, this um, by the time you hear this podcast the campaign will have ended but I'm looking at it right now and uh, guess what it made goal it was at 40, oh that's awesome yeah it's at forty one thousand dollars and you know by the time when I think when Rick Reardon made his his suggestion it was at something like um, twenty thousand so that was just on Monday so uh, you know well done well done Rick Reardon Absolutely. and Rosario yeah. really you know and their Indiegogo like you said it mentions that that he basically funds it with his uh, day job and you know for yeah. them to get this kind of capital is really wonderful that's yeah. great. So now, let's go to the interviews. Hi, this is Kate Fitzsimmons from PW Comics World More to Come, uh, Publishers Weekly's weekly comic book podcast, and I'm here at Brooklyn's Sakura Matsuri with Abby Denson. Hey, how's it going? Hey, so what brings you to the Sakura Matsuri? Well, I am signing uh, my books. I'm bringing Cool Japan Guide and Autopia. So uh, this festival is very you know, Japan culture oriented. So people are very interested in um, the topic. So Cool Japan Guy definitely is a big hit here and everybody wants to know about uh, traveling to Japan and my experiences there. And it's, you know, really fun, big crowd, like 40,000 people. Has it been selling well for you here? Oh yeah, this is always a big event for Japan books for me, yeah. So, um, can you tell us a little bit, like, how did it work? How did you come to be signing here? Did your publisher arrange it? Or? No, it was, I'm, I'm Brooklyn-based, and yeah. this is a big Brooklyn event. And um, I guess, like, many years ago I started doing it because one of the other artists, um, Kate Williams, Kate T. Williamson, who is really good, too, uh, she recommended me, I think. And then, like, I've been doing it every year since, almost. So uh, what is one tip for fans who want to visit Japan that you can get? I would say get your Ghibli Museum tickets way in advance. They sell out like four months in advance. So if you want to go to the Ghibli Museum, then you should go to JTB's website and you know, reserve your tickets ASAP. Thank you. Hi, I'm at Brooklyn Botanical Sakura Matsuri with comic creator Rumi Hara with a, a display of her mini-comics in front of us. Um, hi. Hi. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself? Um, so my name is Rumi Hara. I'm an illustrator originally from Japan. Now I live and work in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I make comics. <laughs> so uh, can you? T so I'm seeing um, Nori and the Bats in the house. And um, let's see, Borderland, Borderland and Igloo, and Return of the Japanese Wolves. So these are all mini comics on sort of the kind of handmade aesthetic to them. Um, are they like 
printed in some kind of interesting way, or is it just like the magic of uh, just color copiers? It's uh, a used risograph printing. It's like basically like a printer, a machine um, that prints really quickly, but um, it's um, it's almost like screen printing because it prints one color at a time. Um, and um, the colors are really bright and vibrant, so I like it. So, um, can you tell us uh, how this year's Sakura Matsuri has been for you so far? Can you tell us how this year's Sakura Matsuri has been for you so far? Oh, it's been great. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Um, I, I was actually here last year, too, and it's always um, great to, to be back. I love talking to people um, about my comics directly and normally in my studio, and um, I don't see many people, so <laughs> it's a special occasion. Um, and so what would you say has been your top seller this year? What's the most popular thing you've, you've created? Um, well, top seller, I'm not sure. I sold a lot of prints. Um, I, it was the first time I framed them. Um, I usually sell them just with the backing, um, but people like the framed stuff, I think. Um, and for the comics, um, I think the return of the Japanese is always popular mm -hmm. um, because it's about the uh, extinct wolves in Japan and um, the, the stories interesting for people who come to Sakura Thank you. And it was great seeing you here. Thank you, you too. Hi, uh, I am at Brooklyn Botanical Garden Sakura Matsuri with Misako Rocks, a uh, manga artist. And can you tell us a little bit about this, your experience at this year's uh, Sakura Matsuri? Oh yeah, usually I'm invited to run manga drawing workshops and have a book autograph and selling a poster stuff. It's just great. I like this event a lot. It's outside healthy, you know? So uh, how has it been for you in sales this year? Oh, it's been great because weather helps, you know? Yeah. And also once after I teach, people want to get to know me, so they come to, you know, buy my books. Nice. And, um, let's see. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing to teach people in your workshops? Um, oh yeah, usually, you know, I just teach them how to make a characters in a manga way, step by step. So any age, anybody, everybody can draw, you know, like really basic stuff. And uh, what is your book that you brought here to autograph and show? Oh, today, I mean, this time I, I'm selling my autobiography. It's called A Rock and Roll Up. It won an award, New York Public uh, Library, Best Teens Book List, something like award. And it's about myself, you know, how I moved here, America from Japan. It's like uh, showing, you know, teens, like, love, true story. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Hi, this is Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm at... Uh, Brooklyn Botanical Garden Sakura Matsuri with uh, Kate T. Williamson, a uh, illustrator and comic creator here at the festival. Um, can you tell us a little about yourself? Hello. Um, well, I make things. I've always been interested in drawing and um, right after college I had a scholarship to study art in Japan for a year so I went to Kyoto which is artist paradise and um, all the inspiration I got from that one year uh, is probably enough for, for a lifetime. So I, um, after I returned from Japan, I made a book called A Year in Japan, which is um, illustrations and 
words by me uh, about things I thought were particularly beautiful or unusual or moving or surprising um, about Japanese visual culture. Um, so I did that and I, I moved back to my parents' house in Pennsylvania and I thought I'd be there for a couple months while I worked on this, but of course it took longer than I thought and a couple months turned into 23 months. And so then, um, actually once, once I was no longer living at home in Pennsylvania, I made another book um, that's a bit more personal about um, that time, which that's called At a Crossroads Between a Rock and My Parents' Place. <laughs> and um, that is more about highlights and uh, a couple low points from um, this time living at home. And when I did this, it was a lot less common to move back home. <laughs> now I think it's probably everyone does that at some point. Um, and that book has um, a little bit of hall notes in it. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, you know, we've got, you've got these beautiful postcards here. They're of sort of things vaguely related to Japan, everything like that, flowers, so on. Uh, and then there's a Hall and Oates postcard. And Hall, Hall is wearing a pink shirt, so that yeah. <laughs> ties in. But no, the uh, you're in, uh, at a crossroads. Um, when I, the period of my life that I was writing about um, Hall and Oates, there's sort of a Hall and Oates uh, theme. theme running through that period where I listened to a lot of their greatest hits and I celebrated my birthday by going to a Hall Notes concert in my hometown with my mom and um, and then they sort of show up again so it seemed seemed connected <laughs> to yeah. me and, and weirdly or maybe not weirdly maybe not surprising at all um, I think it's been my top seller <laughs> today there are a lot of Hall Notes fans out there I guess so <laughs> um, and also at your table as well as Hall Notes and yeah. your books are socks yeah. tell me about the socks well, Why socks? I have always loved socks ever since I was little and um, I spent a lot of, I was an art major in college and I was, spent a lot of time wondering what is my passion though. I knew I liked making things but I didn't know exactly what and um, I actually, right when my dad was picking me up for winter break, I had this sort of, what I refer to as my sock epiphany where I just woke up in this sort of state between being asleep and awake where I suddenly thought, socks, that's it, I should design socks. So that was before I even went to Japan. And um, so I, when I applied for that scholarship, I said, I would like to also do some casual sock research. So when I was there, I did visit um, several factories and met with some sock designers. And of course, because people take off their shoes in Japan, um, Japan is sock paradise. They're just the most beautiful socks in the world um, and the most advanced sock knitting technology there. So I definitely did a lot of sock research and bought a fair amount of socks. And though that was a long time So ago. are these socks designed by you? Yes, now finally. This is like 15 years later. <laughs> Fast forward. I, so it's a dream of mine. It's just taken a, a while to come to fruition. But finally this past year, um, I started my own sock company and they're made in my hometown of Reading, Pennsylvania, which is a former hosiery center. And um, I design them and I have their colors custom dyed um, for the yarn. And and they a lot of them are based on ancient Japanese patterns and the name comes from an ancient Japanese poem. So they are connected to Japan um, in a lot of subtle ways. <laughs> well, and then you have uh, some Sakura socks? They, well, oh, what yeah. are they made out of, anyway? The, so the, most of my socks are mostly cotton, but these Sakura socks are, um, it's a photo I took of cherry yeah. blossoms, and then it's a 
it's like transferred to um, like a polyester, kind of like a knee-high material. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are, that's just for the Sakura Matsuri, I made those. <laughs> so uh, how have your sock sales been at the festival? Oh, they've been, they've been, they've been all right. I think the Sakura socks have been the hot seller, um, I think, because there's, you know, everyone here is pretty into the cherry blossoms right now. Um, other ones have sold some. I think some people, because my socks are made in America and not in China, I think the price point is, is higher. higher. Than what people are used to paying for socks, so I think there's been a little sticker shock today. But, um, but they're really comfortable, and I think people, the people who bought them, I hope they like them. But um, yeah, so we'll see how tomorrow goes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I am so jealous, Kate. Uh, I, I've been to Sakura Matsuri a couple times. It's just so beautiful. And uh, it sounds like I've got to go time. to this. Yeah, I've got to go to this. I've never been. Well, there will be more to come.